we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines on South Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, my co-host as always, Joe Quinn. Hi there. And we're joined again this week by the lovely Amari Rose. Hello, everyone. She's an editor with Dutch.net, which is nl.sot.net. I got that right. Okay. And this week we are going to be looking back at another crazy week on planet Earth. Planes falling out of the sky, planes getting smacked with hail in the sky, wars, rumors of wars, people on the move en masse because of wars, because of wars, terror, terror attacks everywhere because of wars, because of wars. It's more of the same, folks. If you listen to this show regularly, you know the deal. And if you're new to the show, you're in for a surprise. And if you're not listening to the show... You couldn't give a damn. <laughs> What's going on out there? That's like, not necessarily the case. I'd like to address all the people who are not listening to the show right now. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah, silence. There you go. Dead air. <laughs> Dead air to them. Anyway, carry on. So, let's open up with this immigration crisis. I don't know if that's a political political correct <clears throat> term to use. It's Muslim migrants. Mu- double M or double jeopardy. Muslim migrants. Well, it's not bad enough to have migrants swarming all over the place like ants. But if they're Muslims, jeez. I mean, do- the- doomsday scenario. Uh, you know, you got to pull the doomsday switch on that one. Didn't they warn us this would happen? The Muslims would take over Europe. I've been saying for law. 30 years, people have been writing books on it. There's that guy, I um, can't remember his name right, but he wrote that book, The Clash of Civilizations, that was supposedly used to some extent to inform neocon policy. I think he wrote it in the 80s, and it was supposedly informed uh, the Washington neocon kind of policy of you know taking over the world, basically. It posited that there was this fundamental difference between uh, East and West, you know, Muslim and Christian, and it was it was predestined to always come into... Uh, or, or to clash, uh, to come into conflict, or come to come into conflict with each other, and um, but of course it was self. It ended up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. You get psychos like that, or schizoids like that, who write those kind of things, you know, um, when there's no real basis for it, <clears throat> except in the context that you can create it, you can make it happen if you want, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, they looked in the in the eighties and nineties. They looked at the east and west, and they said, "Well, there is no clash. There is no clash there between these two, and we don't see any potentially, you know, coming down the line. So let's create one. Let's manufacture a clash of civilizations, and then we can tell everybody that see it's true." So yeah. Well, this is one of the things on my mind. To what extent is this a kind of an overhyped media-type crisis yeah. as opposed to a real one? Well, in, re- in recent years, what I was talking about there, the, it has become under the ages of the war on terror and the Muslim terrorists attacking 
the freedom and peace-loving, lefty, uh, liberal, bleeding heart types in the West because they're not strong enough to face them and they would come in and, you know, Muslimify us all and make us all submit to Sharia law, make us all wear burqas, including the men, and, um, you know, just be horrible for your average pasty white Westerner. Um, and this was, you know, the evidence for this was this Muslim terror threat uh, that did, they would eventually establish a caliphate or whatever over at least all of Europe. And then next we take Washington, D.C. type thing. So this is the kind of ridiculous rhetoric that we find on things like Bill O'Reilly's show in the U.S. and CNN and Fox in the U.S. Um, they, they actually promoted, helped promoting this, this ridiculous idea uh, and scaremongering people over it all in the context of the war on terror that began, let's say, on 9-11. But what we're seeing today, what we're discussing in terms of the refugee or immigration crisis in Europe is a kind of a Muslim horde <clears throat> coming across, but they're not conquering. They're fleeing uh, in desperation from the war that Western politicians have unleashed on their country. Yeah, that, that's strangely lacking in the media. They don't mention that so much. They don't really tend to go there. It's no. like, yeah, they're coming mainly from Syria, Libya, and Afghanistan. Isn't this awful? Yeah, it's awful. I wonder why that happened. I wonder, I wonder what's wrong with them in their own country. Don't they like it there? No, you see, they love our freedoms. Ah, they're coming for the freedoms. They're coming for the freedoms and democracy, see? Yeah, it's show it's, me the freedoms. It's unbelievable. It's it's unbelievable how they just avoid mention the fact that they're NATO war refugees. Mm-hmm. They're fleeing the hell we created over there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I want to get some idea of the numbers because there's different figures floating around. Um, I've got some here. Did, did any of you get an idea of how many people we're talking about? Well, uh, millions. Go on. Probably. Well, I have an. I don't have a number here, but it says that the 2014 figure of asylum claims in the EU is the highest since the peak in 1992. So since 1992, we're having a lot of refugees coming to Europe. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, it's in the millions, Uh and they're coming from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. Kosovo, Eritrea. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, mostly from the war-torn countries or occupations. And I've been checking what some regular people have been saying. And in Holland, they have this way of thinking that these people are coming to Europe for to take over their jobs and make their lives difficult, but they never think about why they're going there. Mm-hmm. And I have actually looked on social media and see what things, what kind of things they're saying. Well, that's where you get all the facts these days anyway, according to the U.S. State Department, you know? Exactly, yeah. Uh, com- as long as you use common sense as well, then that combined with social media is... Uh, it's hard evidence. No, but I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. There obviously is some decent information on social media, just not enough to uh, justify uh, Washington's Ukraine policy, but that's a different story. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it gives an idea of how 
um, the news on the media affects the minds of the people. For example, some people said, um, God knows how many they've killed in their home countries. They're all jihads and Muslims. Others say it's about time that we get the KKK here. They still are pests. I say shoot them. That soft police approach doesn't scare them. And full is full, the Dutch population comes first. And there have been many comments like these, racial comments, calling them monkeys and they should go back to their monkey land. This is on Dutch media, Dutch social media. Yes, okay. yes. Well, so the Dutch have a bit of a history of that kind of thing anyway, like the British as well, you know. Mm-hmm. They they don't think much of the dark-skinned people. And there are officials and politicians who say similar things. For example, Nadine Morano, a former French minister for apprenticeship and professional formation. I don't know if you know her. Uh-huh. Uh, she complained that the French capital is becoming dirty as the uncontrolled inflow of migrants proliferates prostitution, drugs, and crime. Mm-hmm. So that's her objective opinion on the matter. Yeah. Of course, white Westerners, white French people uh, just have never engaged in those kinds of activities ever. I mean, it just is unheard of oh, before. Never, never. Unheard of before. Uh, never. Yeah. I, I was trying to find, um, obviously the EU has tried to at least pretend as tackling this issue head on. I've tried to get some idea of a number from them. Um, they don't have one. They don't have an overall figure. But let's look at Greece alone. 160,000. 160,000. 20,000 arrived last week. Yeah, 160,000 since the beginning of this year, which is seven, seven, or, se- yeah, seven or eight times the number that came in uh, the same period last year. So right. seven, seven or eight, uh, 100% increase in the numbers last year. Um what do you put this down to? Well, I mean, you talk about Libya, Syria, Afghanistan. Afghanistan is, is still kind of boiling over despite the worst, or the best, sorry, the best intentions of the, of the U.S. military um, or because of the best intentions of the U.S. military. Um, Libya, <clears throat> obviously, it seems that it takes a few years for this kind of thing mm. to filter down. If you're looking at Libya and Syria, you're talking about 2011, um, for both of those when they were subjected initially to uh, NATO bombing and regime change or attempts to anyway and um, in, the, in the past three or four years since then uh, you know it seems that the situation there has ripened to the extent where people a large number of people are already uh, have already left and are filtering westwards that it took that amount of time you know I suppose People tend to people would stick around maybe uh, for the first year or two to try and work things out, but eventually, when they see that it's not going to end, that it's only getting worse, they eventually uh, decide yeah. to leave uh, in the interest of their own lives. Yeah, so there, there is a backlog of people. The best EU estimate for refugees from anywhere crossing the Med this year so far is two hundred and sixty-four thousand. That's over a quarter of a million. Uh, there are and right now 1.6 million Syrian refugees in Turkey planning to go to Greece. How do they know that? Well, I guess these are people in camps positioned close to their border with Greece. Mm-hmm. There are another 2 million Syrians in Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and there are another 6.5 million still within Syria trying to get out. 
all told, you're talking about 10 million Syrians of a population of 25 million. Mm-hmm. Gives you some idea of how royally messed up that place has become. Yeah. Thanks to U.S. proxy warfare. Approaching 50% of the population. Yes. Displaced. Displaced. And, moved out of the and that backlog, you can imagine, that's there are far more numbers than to come. So in this respect, I think ooh, this is not an overhyped issue. I mean, this is like mm. definitely happening. For 2,000 people die on ships trying to cross the Med this year. Um, the question becomes what, in what way is it hyped to what ends? Well, they're using it, uh, British Prime Minister and various EU uh, criminal elite types uh, have been using it, obviously, to uh, increase their own authority and to uh, scaremonger, effectively, make the people of their, the citizens, the the, the people of their own country uh, afraid. So they're hyping the fear aspect of it. Um, talking using the kind of words uh, that they use, which is you know calling, talking about maraud, marauding, um, kind of marauding hordes mm-hmm. and what was the other word? Um, swarms. Swarms. David Cameron, just call me Dave. Oh. Said recently, migrants are a swarm. These migrants are a swarm of people from Africa. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I think it was another British guy, the Home Secretary, maybe. Um, uh, Hammond, Philip Hammond. Philip Hammond, Foreign yeah. Secretary. Foreign Secretary, he said, he called them, uh, that they were marauding <laughs> across Europe. Uh, so those words are obviously very uh, emotionally charged and convey something to the average person, which is you've got to be afraid of these people. But it's interesting to me that if, I think it was just last year when ISIS or ISIL or whatever you want to call them, um, these uh, mercenaries, Unleashed on the Middle East by Saudi Arabia and in connivance with the you know the Turks and and the and the Americans and the Brits and the Canadians, all the paragons of democracy and freedom, especially Saudi Arabia, who likes to chop the heads off people. Um, they ISIS said last year when there was a crisis last year with a lot of uh, boats coming across from North Africa to Italy. Uh, ISIS supposedly put out this statement that they were going to send as as, as their form of asymmetric warfare was to send one million uh, <clears throat> migrants or refugees from North Africa or wherever into Italy and throughout Europe and amongst them would be ensconced uh, ISIS members ready to carry out attacks etc you know so it's interesting that they that someone had ISIS or whatever ISIS in quotes whoever they are put this statement out to kind of in advance set the stage in advance for or set the narrative in advance of uh, of what and who these uh, migrants were essentially to make the west fear them so that suggests to me that the, the, the powers that be whatever uh, in europe and, and and the west in general um have been have known that this was was, was happening and this was going to going to happen uh, and they want to present it in a very particular light to the Western population, you know. Uh, they more than likely don't want them to come, but also want to use the threat of them coming as a way to uh, encourage the average person in the West to authority for protection, 
which is the main goal of most people in authority in this world is to have the people over over whom they rule uh, extremely dependent on them and afraid of a threat, an external threat. It's such an old tactic. It's so boring and I'm, I'm bored seeing it happen and I'm even more bored seeing it actually work on people still today. You know, when you, they can't just put two two and two together basically and see that these idiots are deliberately trying to scare us. So let's not be scared. But apparently that's beyond most people. Even though they've had multiple opportunities to see that in action and to just use even a few of the brain cells to figure that extremely basic and simplistic ruse mm-hmm. out and see through it. Nope, doesn't work. Good job, human beings. Mm-hmm. Not. But here's the thing, short of short of manipulating the situation in this way by bringing in terrorism, the war on terror, the fear of Muslims, there are enough facts on the ground for them to simply report what is at this point and to have people naturally go, oh, Jesus Christ. For the Brits, they're looking at what's going on in Calais Mm. where people are so desperate, they're throwing themselves on train tracks and into transport vehicles that are trying to get across to the UK. Mm. Um, that's at one end, at the far end of north, northwestern Europe, where the least of them have actually made it mm. far. At the other end, the port of entry, mm. primarily Greece, mm. where it's currently got a left-wing government, we're not doing too well, but nevertheless, it's not under a sort of regime that would jump the gun to take advantage of this in the Oh, these are aliens. These are the other. No, they're not. Way. And Greece has a reality where tiny islands have nowhere to put them but inside stadiums mm-hmm. and riots are breaking out. And, and Westerners are seeing the facts that weren't manipulated to make them see, Jesus, but this is a serious problem. You know what I mean? So the situation has, ca- yeah. has caught up with their narratives to the point where they don't even need to manipulate people anymore. They well, but the thing, yeah, but the thing is, it depends on the, on the people in general. Like, uh, Amari just wrote an article that's on English Sat about uh, about this issue, and she mentioned the fact that Greece um, is doing quite a lot to help, or trying to do a lot okay. to help uh, these refugees uh, more, much more than the EU central powers themselves, or even the UN, uh, are doing to help help the situation and Greece is doing all it can, all it can. Uh, and this is in the immediate aftermath of them being uh, as you wrote earlier Neil, uh, kind of economic by EU and, and put in an extremely precarious economic situation so it's very interesting that this one country Greece uh, that has been screwed over in this way economically and, and uh, you know looted by the EU central powers is doing the most to actually help well, first of all, it's it's the country that's actually bearing the brunt of the refugees and it's doing the most to help them, while the EU powers that just looted Greece are kind of turning a blind eye and just going, uh, whatever, you deal with it. You basically said that, right, mm-hmm. uh, Amari? Yeah. Uh, I think it was... Um, um, so who was it in... Um, there, were, there were EU summit meetings on this issue with the idea being to come up with a joint plan where they would allot a certain number of incoming refugees to different countries. Ah, oh, so not crashed and burned. <laughs> that's what they're saying they have to do, yeah, but apparently none of them want to do it, you know. 
<clears throat> and the thing is about people in Greece, there's people in Greece who are seeing these people. I mean, very few people in the EU are actually seeing these people yeah. on their doorstep. But the people in, in southern Greece who are seeing them uh, probably have a very different and a much more humanitarian kind of approach to the situation because they see people, ordinary people, suffering with children, etc. So they're not going to turn around and see them as the EU would like to see them as these evil terrorists type thing and uh, mm. put them all in boats and sink their boats or something, you know. Um, but that's a luxury for people further west. Uh, and it's interesting that the countries further west in Europe who are buffered against uh, th- this crisis, who don't get to have, don't have to face it, uh, you know, f- f- full on or in their faces. Um, they're the ones who, have, who are not having to deal with it and also therefore have the luxury of saying, well, these are cockroaches and swarms and they're marauding and let's, you know, they can make judgments uh, extremely, um, you know, unempathic uh, judgments about these people because they don't know anything about it. They just, all they know is what they read in the papers and what they hear from their politicians. It's extremely um, aggressive and, um, you know, like, as we've mentioned, kind of using these terms, these denigrating terms mm-hmm. for them. So it's very useful for them to have a, uh, an impoverished Mediterranean now because it serves the buffer zone uh-huh. between them in their ivory towers and that that terrible, dangerous world out there that's against our civilization. Mm. So Greece, that's contracted 30%, is in their interest in that respect. It's a buffer zone. Yeah, and there's, there's plenty of room in the EU for many millions of immigrants. And there's plenty of money, obviously. The Germans have it all. They stole it from Greece most recently. Uh, so there's plenty of money to cater for them and and place to put them. I mean, there's several, you know, quite a lot of open space within the EU. You know, some countries like Spain, for example, are relatively sparsely populated. It's not like they don't have any. And Spain is a good example because it has millions, I think, of empty houses because of its housing crisis in recent years. So it's not like there isn't an obvious solution to this. And if there is a lot of or a lot of refugees coming in, they can be housed. But you don't have the political will to do that because you're talking about psychos who don't give a shit about anybody. So and now, they're but talking. that's not going to stop if they come in. If if there's a if there's a massive increase, if you get tens of millions of people coming. Uh, I can imagine that they would just, instead of doing the obvious right thing to do, they would, it could ultimately lead to the whole kind of Schengen area in, in the EU being being torn up. They've said people that closing, closing off their borders and mm-hmm. going back to kind of nation states and everybody deals with. Well. But that would destroy the whole European super state idea as well. And I don't think they want to go yeah, there. Here's the thing. Somebody last week, I um, don't remember which country. Anyway, one of the. Schengen area. Schengen, by the way, is just the agreement. Same the place in Holland. No, I think I think it is. Anyway, yeah. it's the agreement that allows for open borders within most mainland European countries, which is why there's no passport control um, between EU countries. Somebody last week said suggested we may need to reconsider Schengen. I, our country will close the borders and reimpose border control. Mm-hmm. And it was in the context of the migrant slash refugees and he got shot down for it. Lo and behold, three days later, there's a terror attack 
we'll get to this in a second, Terra, on a train coming from the Netherlands to Paris. And the French minister, in a different context, says, oh, we may need to reconsider the Schengen Area Agreement. And people go, yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) It's so transparent what happened there. It's amazing what you can achieve with terrorism, you know. Um, It can justify almost everything. It can make people flip from one perspective to completely the opposite uh, overnight. If you just go, boo. Uh, you go, oh, yeah, okay, whatever you said, yeah, I'll do whatever you said. So, I mean, and we see that that's, that's happened, you know. I mean, it's used to justify, it has been used to justify all sorts of crimes in the, and, and usually in the name of some noble cause. It's amazing uh, what just scaring people, traumatizing people, physically traumatizing or psychologically traumatizing people uh, can do. It's kind of a, ver- a form of uh, torture. Uh, it has the same result on a mass scale that, let's say, mild torture would have where you attempt to break people down psychologically and get them to do things that they wouldn't normally do or agree to things that they wouldn't normally agree to. And that's exactly what terrorism has, has been used to do quite clearly. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's freaking obvious. Um Mm-hmm. So, and this is why this is another screamingly obvious conclusion that is only like two, a two plus two kind of equation. Nine eleven clearly was a mass psychologically traumatizing event for the American people that got the vast majority of them to just uh, to accept uh, the U.S. US military and U.S. government uh, bombing uh, country, attacking and invading countries in the Middle East had, had no responsibility for nine eleven whatsoever. But everybody and the U.S. agreed with it. They were all going to sign up, you know. Probably a lot of them did sign up to the military so they could go and avenge America uh, against somebody who did this thing. Uh, let's let's roll. And off they go. And um, But the strange thing is that, is that 9-11 is uh, blamed on Muslim terrorists. So 9-11 has to be seen, therefore, if you follow the official narrative, as the biggest example of someone or a group of people shooting themselves in the foot ever in the history of the world. Because... Uh, 9-11 traumatized American people, psychologically traumatized American people to get them to support a U.S. military invasion of the Middle Eastern countries where the terrorists were. So the terrorists, if they did it with that knowledge, they deliberately did it to ensure that America would invade their countries and kill them and, and destroy their ability to you know, operate. Of course, the other narrative that they come up with is that this is actually recruiting. They knew Al-Qaeda knew that 9-11 would have this effect, that it would provoke the beast to invade Middle Eastern countries, and that Al-Qaeda, etc., would use this, therefore, these invasions as a recruiting tool for their their organizations. And thus achieve their long-term goal of a global caliphate. Right. But also, right. the other narrative is that, yes, because now you see this is conquering and invading and... Uh, and establishing that Muslim caliphate taking over Europe and the West by other means, because that's what the long-term strategy from way back in 9-11 and before it, when they planned it, Al-Qaeda, this is, was to create the situation that we've just been talking about here, which is the refugee crisis. This is the way that Al-Qaeda planned from the very beginning to get all the Muslims from the Middle East to invade Western Europe. They're smart. They're really smart. They're smart guys. Wow. 
and all that from a cave. And so they're all standing exactly. So that's amazing. And they're all standing there at these but at this border in Greece, you know, uh, wanting to get in, saying, "Oh, we're we're helpless and stuff. Look at look at my baby and stuff. Uh, have pity on me." But they're very. That's just a, a cover. That's just a ruse. And they're that's just a front. They're pretending they're, pretending. they're hungry. They're pretending they're crying and they're hurt. Yeah, right? they're that's spraying amazing. water in their eyes and making them look like, like they're, that they're. They're all like, actors, more or less. Al Qaeda actors, and they're all. Con- and that's how they're going to take over Western Europe. You see, it all makes perfect sense when your mind is completely <laughs> messed up, completely screwed up. Oh my god. Um. Yeah. The the. The freaky thing about it for me, I mean, if you're thinking, if you want to think long term, I don't think they've worked it out this way, but it is weird how we are going towards um, that totalitarian zone where camps, massive increase in police check uh, checkpoints, papers please, papers please. We're approaching this 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 zone, and it's happening in a way that's. People are going along with it because it's evidently the right thing to do, because it's been created by other facts that just arose naturally in some cases. I'm thinking here of there's the other the, the Calais camp. It's it's called a migrant camp. Uh, no water between England and France. It's Camp Calais. Oh, it's actually it's, called it's, Camp. Calais. It's called the jungle. And it's an Al it's an Al Qaeda uh, military camp. Right. Called Camp Calais. You know, you have Camp Bond Steel and Camp. <laughs> okay. uh, and the different names of the U.S. military camps, you know. This is Camp Calais slash Al-Qaeda. There's another one in Germany, and they've, they're going with the same meme where it's Camp something, I can't remember the name of the place. Camp Jihadi Nutcases. Um, and it, I just keep thinking that they have the basis now between this and the war on terror. For, for example, Chris, uh, what's her name, Le Pen this week to say, Islamists, nice and vague, not terrorists, mm. Islamists, well, who the hell is that? That could be, that could be anyone, must be expelled from France. There are like, a lot of Christianists. Yeah. You know, the Christianists. The Christianists. Uh, they're the ones who are Christian and are all about the Christianity. Yeah, there's like, there's like swarms of them. Swarms of Christianists. <laughs> <laughs> the Christianists are going to fight uh, the, the Islamists. Uh, uh, and the final and the final battle. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? The great class of the Islamists versus the Christians. Yeah, the Christians. Yeah, but carry on. What were you saying? I th- I think I think we're, we've, over the last few shows we, we've pointed out the way things happen in a seamless nature. I see this refugee issue seamlessly, with the occasional help from terror attacks like we hadn't in France a couple of days ago, seamlessly bringing us to, well, well, they're already grouped together, so let's just, you know, put a fence around it. And whenever we collect more of them from other places, we'll throw them in there. And let's just set up a few more here, 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 and here. It'll make it a lot easier. To and it's it. nice and open as to whether it's because they're migrants and they need to be processed or whether it's because they're terrorists and they're potentially dangerous. Yeah, it's per. It's, I mean, it's, it's a perfect cover for. Well, the intel agencies. Uh, this is a boon for them because what they usually have to do is go around <clears throat> the country that they're in, or in European countries, or elsewhere, and find some deluded, naive uh, person of nominal Muslim faith 
who has low intelligence and tell him, induct him into Al-Qaeda and, and, you know, handle him in that way and get him to carry out some kind of terror attack. Uh, but that takes a lot of work and you know, a lot of effort involved in that. And there's a process that can take quite a long time of grooming someone like that. But now they have uh, their pick in these camps, you know. You just go around interviewing people, supposedly taking their details, whatever. And you find the ones that are most likely to want to be uh, or maybe a, bit, a bit more extreme in their religious beliefs. And yeah. there you go. I mean, it's just... it's. There were Syrians and Pakistanis who um, happily took 30 euros to attack police officers in Athens mm. at the height of the referendum issue. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, when you're desperate, you know, you mm-hmm. can be induced, paid... Uh, tricked, whatever, into doing anything. Mm-hmm. So, and so the reality they've created thus far has now has a boost to take it to the next level. Yeah. yeah, it's creating a problem. I mean, particularly in France. You know, France is the highest number of Muslims in uh, Europe. In Europe. Uh, there's something like about 10% of the population or about 6 million Muslims in France. And um, you know, they could, if there's anybody in a pasty white elite, criminal elite, who is racist, which of course there are, uh, most of them. And um, if they ever had the idea of creating a situation where you would deport or lock up a bunch of, or put in camps a bunch, uh, as many uh, French Muslims as you wanted, uh, then this certainly has the potential to provide that uh, justification, you know, this is... Um, immigration crisis, you know, um, you let them in and you, you know, treat them badly and there's kind of, you know, put them into, into <clears throat> what do you call them, into, you know, crappy housing complexes or uh, projects or whatever you want and just treat them very badly. And then, you know, you have, you have the, the, the embryo there of a, of a kind of a, of social, a social chaos type situation, you know, that you can it can incite to achieve that end. I don't know if that's where they're going or that's what they want to do, but certainly if they wanted to, the whole migrant crisis has has the potential possible for them if they let them all in, you know, let uh, more and more in. You know, if if, it, if down the line this crisis is resolved by basically opening the borders and letting as many people in as possible, but then treating them like second-class citizens, well, that's ripe for for a kind of social, some level of social uprising that then can be responded to with typical police state uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. There's a recipe for for chaos all the way around. I mean, short of nefarious designs by the powers that be in Europe and, and elsewhere, um, when you have any large whatever large if you have a large number of people who suddenly turn up in a place that already has limited resources obviously that's not everywhere in Europe it's only in certain towns or whatever certain districts certain regions uh, it doesn't help the community mm-hmm. because it's, it's normal it's it's not, not because they're inherently against them because they're either Muslim or different colour but simply because you've got new people suddenly arrive when you already have a, a community and a way of life. Um, the normal social bonds aren't you know, messed up. Things start to break down. And then you compound it with 
extra chaos brought on by people who will take advantage of the situation. Mm-hmm. There's now the question to me is like we don't like to posit that everything is a is a conspiracy theory, but a lot of things are being controlled either in advance or as they happen, they're being managed as they happen. But I think as time progresses here, um, as a result of this just unfettered years or decades and decades or even centuries of unfettered greed by psychopaths in positions of power, you end up with a completely chaotic situation. If people just keep taking and taking and taking and they never stop to say we've had enough or this is going wrong, when they see things going wrong, they just take more. It makes them feel, oh my God, the food supply is going to run out. I need to take more and more and they contribute more and more to the chaos. And at some point, when you start to try and analyze some stuff that's going on in the world, you kind of have to just conclude that this is just out and out chaos. Mm-hmm. There is nobody controlling this. This is just, this is off the leash kind of stuff, you know, and there's, um, and, and like I said, it's a result of just the psychopaths gone wild type of thing and doing what they like to do, which is uh, feed off control and destroy without any concern about uh, the results of those actions. Um, when there's negative results, they contain those and manipulate them and, and just move ahead with 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 their with the same policy and the same the same feeding, you know. Uh, so you know it's good that that's a kind of an explanation because sometimes it's very difficult to actually see make any sense whatsoever of uh, of the stuff that's that's going on. It just seems these people are just reacting to a situation that has got out has got beyond their control. Mm-hmm. Um. And they're just trying to make the best of it, which would generally involve them just talking a load of nonsense and telling a bunch of lies about what's actually happening and spinning it, trying to spin it, you know. But eventually the spin won't be enough to cover up the obvious reality on the street, you know. Um, And I think that's coming pretty soon, you know. The worst case scenario actually in terms of, and this is not to say anything bad about the, the migrants or the refugees, the kind of worst case scenario is when you have a large number of people who have no uh, link to the society or the culture that they now find themselves in. And at that point, if at that point um, things start to disintegrate on a social level, you have some kind of a major social crisis from whatever reason, you know, short running out of food supplies or uh, like in the US, you know, no water or climactic uh, changes climate change, sorry, um, in that situation, having a large number of foreigners in your country, like I said, who have no ties and don't feel any kind of a responsibility necessarily to the country in which they now live, um, that can get pretty bad. That can really exacerbate any kind of a social chaos situation because those people are just going to be there to, they're going to try and protect themselves and, um, you know, <clears throat> get what they need in whatever way they can without any consideration for community ties or any community ties. So it's, uh, it seems like there's potential there for a, a really nasty situation. And of course, the people to blame are the people who created it, which is, as we keep saying, these nut jobs in positions of power who are just, yeah, they're not, they're insane. They're, from a normal human perspective, they are technically insane. The way that they say things, the way that they talk about things. Listen to Tony Blair. He should be in a mental asylum. Mm. The guy is so detached from reality that that just get a psychologist to come and analyze him and he'd be put straight into a mental home. And David Cameron? David Cameron as well. 
But Tony Blair is just a, a kind of a, a really good example of it because, you know, you hear him talking about when the entire world effectively, apart from his few friends and the criminal elite, um, kind of have said and he's made it impossible for him to ignore the fact that they all think he's a war criminal and that he's the scum of the earth and that no one likes him. He still swans around and, and, and says that it was a really good thing that we did in Iraq and this is good for everybody and as if everybody agrees with him. You know, mm-hmm. when, some, when, you have, when you have a large number of people or everybody around you all saying, you're an asshole, you did wrong, we hate you, go away, never darken our doorstep before, and you say, hi, everybody, thanks for the great welcome. That's insanity, and that's effectively what yeah. he's doing. He needs to be in a mental hospital. Yeah. And yeah. I'll put him there if he ever comes near me. <laughs> he recently uh, pops up in a, a Guardian op-ed I'm warning the Labour left not. And he prefaced it by saying, I know you all don't particularly like me, we all agree that we cannot have Jeremy Corbyn as the new Labour leader party, uh, Labour Party leader. Yeah, but everybody doesn't agree with you, Tony. That's what you're missing again. You know, reality. The com- the comments under that article were like, well, I think there was one positive one. No, and they were <clears> marked <throat> up. You know, he's roundly hated by everybody because yeah. he made the mistake of actually being a Labour. Uh, Prime Minister and being a member of the Labour Party and acting like a Conservative, acting like a traditionally like a Tory, a warmongering Tory. Tory. So obviously none of the Tories, none of the Tory uh, supporters like him because he's a he's Labour, right? So he's the natural enemy. But he's made everybody in his own party hate him as well uh, because of what he did. And why wouldn't you hate him? He's largely responsible for killing a few million people. He's a mass murderer and one of the worst war criminals in recent history. But he still walks around and gets, you know, $100,000 for speaking to a bunch of uh, politicians and corporate types. Yeah, I think he's uh, getting a check now from the Ukraine government. Mm. Anyway, um, do you want to say something about this train incident? Not really. These, I mean, America saved the day. What else is there to say? America bailed, bailed out the French yet again. If you don't mind me saying, always coming to the rescue, like they did in the Second World War. Like the Second did. World War all over again. It's the Second World War microcosm. The Second World War was played out on that train. And these heroes are... Some evil Nazi, Muslim, whatever, Nazi Muslims... Was on, one of them was on the train. Islamo-fascist is, is the term. Islamo-fascist <laughs> communist, because he was carrying a Kalashnikov. Exactly. He got it directly from Putin himself. So uh, he was on the train, and he with a Kalashnikov, and there's some debate over whether or not he fire, fired the weapon or not, uh, but immediately on sighting this uh, infidel to uh, True Blue American soldiers who were who are stationed in some occupied part of Europe. Afghanistan. Well, well they just got back from yeah, Afghanistan. That's what they were in, you know, in their in the client client European state uh, you know, owned by Washington, probably Holland or Belgium. They're probably in shape in, in, in NATO headquarters in, in Belgium. And um, so they see the this Islamo fascist Nazi communist on the train with the Kalashnikov and they immediately jump up, recognize the enemy, 
I said, let's roll. Hoo-yah, let's go, let's roll. Hoorah! Hoorah, hoorah, let's roll. And they ran over and took him down and beat him unconscious. And one of them got a few cuts because the guy had a box cutter, which directly ties oh, him. Oh, he had to have a box cutter. Well, it directly ties him to 9-11 as well. Exactly. He was directly tied. He was probably one of the 9-11 hijackers. Uh, come back from the dead. Um, or one of their protégés. in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and... They took him down, and that was the end of it. And um, the guy actually has said, after he was arrested, that he's amazed that they're calling him a terrorist. He wasn't a terrorist at all. His plan was to, uh, to, kind of not hijack the train, but to um, steal money to buy food. Rob the train, basically. He was homeless, and he said he found the Kalashnikov in a bag. Which may not be unlikely in in, in Belgium, you know, um, but he found it in a bag. <laughs> in a park where he usually slept with a cell phone and he picked it up and said, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use this to rob the people on the train. So he got on the train with a view to robbing it and he was going to rob the people and then shoot out the window and jump out. It's a really bad idea, like, because you think about it. Trains go very fast. Well, the train's moving, so you can't jump out of a moving train. You're going to probably kill yourself. And in the case that you're going to escape one of the trains stop at a station, why would you shoot out the window? Just walk out the door. So he hadn't thought this through very well, obviously, which is probably the reason why he was rather easily disarmed and didn't kill anybody. Didn't even shoot, fire the gun, supposedly. So, um, but the point here is that this was two American troops, two American soldiers who saved the day, right? Saved all of France from this terror attack. And it wasn't a terror attack, and uh, it's just stupid. It's, it's obviously not, it's obviously an accident. It obviously is what this guy probably said it was. It's some crazy homeless person who for some in somewhere or other got in Kalashnikov and decided on a really bad idea I had a really bad idea to rob a train but it's been spun into a terror attack and now they're saying France is on high alert now because of this uh, for more terror attacks and thinking about closing the borders yeah everything's terror attack you know I mean people you know a kid can't point a plastic gun at a policeman these days without being possibly terrorist related so, and the fact that it didn't it didn't actually go anywhere suggests that that's what it actually was. That it was just a stupid, uh, really bad idea by some homeless guy who's maybe a bit unstable. Uh, because if it had been a proper terror attack, a la Charlie Hebdo or something, there would have been a lot of people killed, and it would have been much more involved than it actually was. I.e., no fatalities and just some some hapless dude. Yeah. There, I mean, there are actually many of these incidents that go on all the time. I mean, we've had other reports that were later just now, was just crime-related, where people on Kalashnikovs, for example, pulled over an entire convoy of Saudi diplomats in Paris, robbed them blind on the streets, uh, including of sensitive state documents, and it was just hushed up and put, oh, nothing to see here, when easily that could have been hyped up as a terror event. If we didn't do it, it's not a terror event. That's what the Western intel agencies, that's their, their party line of their policy is. Well, then, we didn't do that, that's not a terror attack. But that suggests that this hapless guy on the train was induced to be there at that time and to, and that they were ready for whatever fallout came from it, whether he killed anyone or no. not, they were ready and waiting to convey this as a terror attack. No, the people who carry out these bony terror attacks don't leave open the possibility that you're terrorist patsy is going to immediately be disarmed and not kill anybody. You know what I mean? That's kind of small cheese, you know? 
that's you don't invest any time and effort in, in, in doing something like that. You let that kind of thing happen on its own, which it probably will happen uh, increasingly on its own because of the way they've hystericized society and actually, uh, you know, marginalized and uh, Muslims in Western Europe and also created an awful lot of mental illness, <laughs> which uh, is, is, you know, very prevalent in Western society because of the nature of Western society, which is mental. <laughs> it is mental. Um, we want to say anything else on this? There was another terror attack uh, of the week, mm. an actual one in so far as explosives were used, people were killed. It was Thailand's worst ever mm. such event. Over two days, well, three days maybe, they didn't initially initially connect the two events. Uh, bombings at a shrine in Bangkok. Um, ten people killed, I think. Many more injured. Supposedly some guy just ran through the area with grenades or some form of explosive that he would throw. Somebody was seen throwing something. From the bridge. Explosive from the bridge. That was mm-hmm. the second event. Mm-hmm. And the first event was... Uh, somebody... A bomb exploded near a, shine, a shrine in the commercial and tourist center of the Thai capital. Right. Somebody supposedly country. left a backpack in this yeah. case. Right. But they got CCTV footage of him and they said, this is our man. But there were two guys in CCTV TV footage who, who, came, who handed themselves in and said, that wasn't me. Or that was me. But right. I'm not a bomber. I didn't plant any bombs. So that's... That was a red herring. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the people who did it are unknown. Okay, there's no further development on that. No, probably because it, that was another example of some, in some way or other, Western CIA type mm, uh, operation, terror attack operation, basically. You know, uh, Usually the actual people who are involved in doing those things get away and there's some kind of a... But, a, a party. Uh-huh. Now the, but before that, the media angle on it was to try to convey, well, there's some issues with them Muslims over there too. Yeah. And then connected it to China. Yeah. Uh, specifically, Western Chinese Uyghur in the Xinjiang state in the far west of China, which has a Muslim population and which has people who have popped up mm. in Afghanistan right. in terror training camps. These are, this is the far reaches of NATO's or the CIA's proxy Muslim mercenaries a la Afghanistan or whatever, you know, basically. These are the people that they collect from around the world and use to further U.S. kind of foreign policy, which is, oh, there's terrorists over there. Uh, we have to go and invade or, you know, attacking Americans, whatever. Uh, yeah, but these guys were um, this this group in eastern China that are were being blamed for it. The Uyghurs, I think they're called, isn't it? How do you pronounce that? Do you know, Uyghur, U I G H U R. Uyghur. 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 The Uyghur people who want an independent state or independence uh, in in eastern China, and um, they're being heavily funded by the National Employment National Endowment for Democracy, um, which finances all sorts of you know separatist type uh, organizations that they then obviously if they're giving large quantities of cash to these people I think they give them about half a million dollars last year it's on the NED website um, these are the people who were blamed for this attack in, um, in Thailand and 
they, 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 they've been given money, the NED has been given money to their political wing, whatever. But of course, if you give them money, you have direct contact with them and it's very easily, very easy to uh, tell them what to do with that money or give them training in, in certain operations, etc. which in this case, um, it seems to involve uh, a bomb in, in Thailand, which I think is to do with the, the kind of attitude of the, the Thai government essentially and um, the US had been supporting uh, I think it was last year there was a basically a military general who had uh, taken power a few years previously in a coup and he was ousted and there was, there's a democratic president there now and I think he t- that that the, the government that's in power now is tends to be more uh, pro-China and isn't doesn't want to play America's uh, Eastern uh, Asian game essentially which is everybody lets everybody get China that's all okay. the Eastern Asian states get China um, so uh, this attack in Thailand was maybe the typical kind of uh, destabilization first destabilization uh, attempt against the, the, the Thai government but there's also a lot of evidence that this Uyghur people are uh, members of, of that Uyghur movement or whatever are have been fighting in Syria and in Libya, uh, against Assad, etc. So these are just mercenaries, essentially. These are groups that, from which the CIA, etc., pull mercenaries to do their dirty work to carry out American foreign policy, which is, you know, extremely dirty, obviously, and always has been. It's based in dirty tactics and destabilization efforts and murder of civilians. That's what American policy is. American foreign policy is kill the civilians, effectively, to change policy within a country um, okay so we're chalking this up to a strategy of tension mm-hmm. a reminder to Thai and maybe also wider region to stay yeah. on board yeah with the West just last year I think it was the Thai government had expelled with hoods over their heads a bunch of these Uyghur people uh, and sent them back to China for the Chinese to deal with them because uh, they had stopped them, the Thai, the Thai government had stopped them in Thailand on their way to Syria. They were going to fight with uh, ISIS or whatever in Syria. Uh, they were jihadis from eastern China. <laughs> Amazing. Is the scale of this thing is unreal? From China to how far west do they go? I mean, are we going to hear about Irish Muslim jihadists going to Syria one of these days? No, Irish are British, obviously. Oh, British, yeah. Quite a lot of British. Jihadi John, you know, and all the, the schoolgirls and stuff. Jihadi Jane. And a lot of Americans going, but no Irish ones yet. Uh, I haven't. There isn't too much of a, a fundamentalist. Oh, we had the guy who was in Libya, though. He was yeah, the head of the right, LIFG. He, yeah, he had married an Irish woman, actually. Right. Uh, and he was he had a house in, in, in Dublin, the outside Dublin. And he was robbed of he was the robbed. cash the CIA gave him. Gypsies put in his house. Gypsies, gypsies went in his house and robbed it. Yeah, the CIA gave him. He was uh, he was leading the Libyan rebels to overthrow Gaddafi on the, on behalf of the CIA. And the CIA had given him two hundred grand for his efforts, and he had kept it in cash, you know, in, in loose cash in in his uh, hot water closet. In his sister in closet in his house. Somewhere and, somewhere in North Dublin. And when he wasn't there, gypsies came in and stole it all. And in the report in the press he had actually he had actually admitted all that that he, he got the money from the CIA. This is a guy who's just back from Libya from overthrown Gaddafi. I got this money from the CIA and the and the gypsies stole it on me. Where where's the sympathy? 
Well, that's because he told the cops. Yeah, he told them all. He said, well, I was robbed of money. Oh, where'd you get all that money from now? And he said, well, the CIA. I think he was thinking, if he was thinking at all, that when he told the guardy, the Irish police this, they would go, oh, right, yeah, we'll definitely help you get that back as soon as possible. Ah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Funny. Um, a, another conflict zone that's gone a bit nuts this week, it occasionally does, again, thanks to American foreign policy, is the Battle of the Koreas. So I think it amounted to somebody firing at somebody else and the other guy is saying, we're, we're going to declare war. And that's probably all we need to say about it because this happens every couple of years. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's like, whatever. However, you, know, you have to wonder what's going on there because mm-hmm. the U.S. has a massive, mil- more than one military bases in, in South Korea. And it has a large, I think there's 27,000 or some, a large number of U.S. military uh, troops stationed permanently on a rotational basis, but permanently in, in in South Korea and has been there for a long time. And that's, you know, the U.S.'s military outpost in in, in Eastern Asia, one of them. And uh, so it's interesting that this threat from North Korea, uh, from this uh, Kim Kim Young, some young man, I don't know. It's Kim Young. <laughs> is he Kim Young Il? Kim or is that his father? I, whatever. He's the got guy, an amazing haircut. The guy with the dodgy, give him that. The guy with the dodgy haircut. He, he is this uh, arch body nemesis, but a really bad caricature oh, of one, you know? terrible. And uh, so he threatens, I'm going to nuke whoever. He said he was going to nuke America recently. Uh, but he's certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's enough to pose a, a, a plausible threat to South Korea, which obviously justifies... Uh, continued U.S. Uh, military presence in South Korea, you know? Yeah. It's very difficult when you've got bases all over the world. You're like 10, 15 miles away on the other side of the globe and your military bases are in all these countries and there's pressure coming on you maybe to like, do you really need to be here and stuff? It's very hard to come up with a reason to stay there, you know? Why would you need to keep your military there unless there's some kind of a threat to the country that is hosting you? So if there is no threat... Well, it's you know it makes sense to kind of create one in some way or other, you know, because I mean the military is very useful because it has weapons and it uses the weapons and it needs a threat to use the weapons against. And the reason it needs to use the weapons is because the people who make the weapons need to keep making money from using the weapons. You can't just supply the military and then have them never use them. They have to expend the bombs, you know, drop them and shoot the guns and fly the planes and stuff, you know. Otherwise. The defense industry, the, which are some of the biggest and, and most profitable American multinational corporations, um, they stop making money. Military has to be doing military stuff against a real enemy. So what if you don't have one? What if everybody's peaceful? Shit. Then you don't get the money. So what do you do? Um, buy, buy an enemy. Buy one, make one. Buy one, make one, get one free. <laughs> well, they've got a two-for-one deal going right now because breaking news is that explosions have gone off at a military base outside Tokyo in Japan. Uh-huh. The region. Uh, I can't say anything about it. I don't know. They just said explosions at an ammo depot at a U.S. military base. But, you know, it's kind of suspicious given what's happening 
in Korea, given what's happened in Japan. I mean, all of these things come together in a strangely coincidental way. The U.S. is having a hard time keeping South Koreans and especially Japanese people on board with their massive bases that have mm-hmm. been there for 70 years now. It's kind of been a long time to be justifying on the basis of, well, you know, World War Two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, 70 years ago. Well, are they going to keep be doing that in a few years? You know? <clears throat> I know World War Two back in, uh, back in the day there, uh, you know, uh, yeah, nobody alive remembers it, but yeah, we fought that war. We can't remember the name of it anymore. It's been so long ago. But remember that war where we helped you out and stuff, you know? That threat's still there and, you know, we should still be here. Really? Yes. And of course. I don't agree, I'll shoot you. The justification for it now is Russia and China's alliance. Yeah. But it's completely reversed from the narrative, which was the other way around. Japan and Germany were the problem but because they were Nazis. Oh, but now Russia and China are Nazis. Wait, they're communists. I mean, the terror or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They just flipped <laughs> it around. It's strange, yeah. But we, you know, it's now the, the ones that were the enemy back then are now uh, the the allies, and the ones that were the allies are now the enemy. They just make it up as they go along. And the whole point of it is to maintain themselves in power and maintain their hegemony around the world. Why? Because they're insane. You know, people, they've been corrupted and infected with this, uh, basically a greed and a lust for power. And it is like a real psychological disorder these people suffer from. Of course, we all suffer because of their illness. People of the world suffer because of their illness, but it is quite clearly a psychological illness when, uh, beyond all reason, and for no real benefit other than the end goal of having power in and of itself, you continue to seed chaos around the world and have wars and invade countries and kill people. I think at some some level these people really believe that if there's no hegemon, if there's no one country or form of government on top, then the only alternative to that is utter chaos. They really believe that. So it's going to create utter chaos? It's anarchy. To stop it. it's, it's anarchy out there, therefore you need us. And, and look, can't you see anarchy is increasing? That's because you need us. But the fact that somebody believes something is neither here nor there. It's kind of irrelevant. To, to the actual, you know, to an objective assessment of it. Someone's belief in something is, uh, by definition, subjective. So you need someone, an objective observation of what they're doing and an objective assessment of what they're doing. Like, for example, the people, the man, the guy who, the serial killer, went, uh, that went and killed a bunch of people, innocent people. Uh, he did it because he believed that God was telling him to do it and that God told him to do this because it was the right thing to do. Are you going to give any credence or val- validity, val- validity to, to, to something like that? Well, no, for me, the, no, the, but there is, said, it's in this example thing. of a serial killer, there's a method to his madness, the type of victims he picks, the types of things he does to them, the types of things he does to not be caught. There is actually a method to the American government's madness. Well, yeah, they're going about it in, in, in the right way if they want to achieve their ends, but their ends are fundamentally irrational and similar to the ends of the serial killer. Why did you do this? Not that he did it and he did it successfully, but why did you do this? 
I did this because God told me to do it and I believe that God told me to do it and that it was the right thing to do because God said it. Well, obviously it's delusional and the person needs to be in hospital and needs to be put away for his own protection and for the protection of the safety of society. The same applies to these people in, in power in the world today. Their belief behind, the belief that motivates all the things that they're doing is completely insane. There's, there's no rational who is reality this, to it. Who is this God who tells them to do these things? I don't. Doesn't matter really, does it? Somebody whispering in his ear. Some, some CIA operative pointing a microwave device at his ear. Um, you know, it's the whole thing is insane, and that's I like that explanation. You know, because you don't really have to dig too much into the details anymore <laughs> to say it's all nuts. Be very short, sought focuses we do you know. <laughs> Just list the things that have happened and then put the conclusion. It's all bonkers. People want to know why, though. Because it's nuts. Because they're nuts. Because they're crazy people. Because they're insane. Just accept the fact that you live in an insane asylum and the inmates... Uh, are you calling our readers and listeners insane? No, I'm saying they live in one. They're the sane ones, but it's the inmates of the insane asylum who have actually taken control and are, yeah. uh, uh, they're writing the daily routines for everybody every day and how things are going to go down. So enjoy it. It's fun, no? No. No. It is fun. It's kind of fun. I mean, not that kind we of, take a really. twisted pleasure out of seeing, of course, we suffer with having to look at this crap day in, day out. But it's so mad that it's like, it's almost fun to be the point seeing it, how mad it is. It's Well, you have to, you know, be able to keep your head in it and... Part of things that one of the things that makes I think makes people go crazy when they're trying to research and investigate and understand this is because their goal is to fix it. If I can find the solution to something, I can fix it. If I can find the reason for something, or if I can understand the mechanism by which something happens, then I can develop a solution. But if you accept the fact that there is no solution possible, then you can accept what's going on. You mightn't like it, but, you know, you have to learn to live with, you know, a, a kind of a, a lack of control, let's say, mm. of, of, of the situation and learn to live with uh, uh, an uncontrollable kind of future or an open future in that, in that sense, you know. Because um, we've tried for long enough to kind of inform people uh, of what's going on and researched and looked into the reasons behind it. Unfortunately, that's the conclusion you come to, is that there is no solution to this. There's no way anybody's going to fix any of it, that this is going to play out. But it does have an end. There's a denouement, because they can't, the, the people who are running this world cannot continue on with the policies that they're continuing on with. Eventually, they're going to cause uh, some a, a level of chaos and upset in the world that it'll collapse something well you'll have a macrocosmic kind of collapse of everything you know when they they take it if you take that far enough you know uh, if you take a rational people and put them in positions of power and let them direct society and make decisions for the way society should evolve and put uh, uh, sign laws and enforce laws and use equally insane people to enforce insane laws well anybody can see what the end what the end result of that is you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
It's not going anywhere. It's going down rather than up. In terms of it's going inward rather than outward. It's not expansive. It's not creative. It's entropic. It's, and there's only so much you can engage in a destructive principle and destructive activities until you've, or before you've destroyed everything. There's nothing left to destroy. You can only feed off something so long before there's none left. And when you, when you undermine a society enough, eventually it'll collapse. And especially if that kind of infection and those effects are spreading around the ordinary people as well. Indeed. Um, I want to say something quick about Greece. They've called elections for September 20th. Uh, my advice to people would be just to give up on that. That's done. Basically, Ceres is finished. It might still be Ceres in name, but the the protest is over. It was a protest. They, I, I wrote about it recently, and I've been listening to you and reading some of what Varoufakis has been saying over the last few years. They had a plan. They they were, if you like, deluded by hope. But they had a plan based on an objective assessment of how the situation is in Greece, in Europe, and even broader. Varoufakis' book is a kind of analysis of, from a financial point of view, of how the U.S. set this up. Not the U.S. per se, but the financial overlords, whoever. Um... It's very good. It's I'm going to follow up on it, uh, hopefully this week. And the short of it is that after the last time we had this kind of global catastrophe, like from the point of view of the global economy, that was the Great Depression, 1929. And the elite in the U.S. were interested, had been for some arguably since a century previously, in becoming the hegemon. And they wanted to figure out how to do it. And they figured it out. And by the time World War II was over, they were the hegemon by default. But they realized what they needed to do was have other power centers through which they could manage things. Mm -hmm. And that's why Germany today is king in Europe. And Japan in the East has been problem now with China, and and that's that system of managing other centers is breaking down. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's the big big picture, and Varoufakis understands that well. And then at the European level, he had a plan. The Syriza idea was to go all in and force a situation that would bring about a change in regime. I don't mean necessarily the personnel running Europe, but in the way they approach the current problem. Austerity. Of clamping down. They're basically saying to them, look, there's no need for us to continue on this contractile path. Mm -hmm. We can have growth again, and here's how. Mm -hmm. And they agreed with him. He's met people, really high-level people in German government over the years. They knew him long before he became this pain-in-the-ass guy from Greece who upset everything this year, they knew well what he was saying. And they agreed, yeah, totally, you're, you're right, this would definitely work. Your, your solutions are very well thought out, they would work. But we're not going to do it. And he's like, why? What, what do you mean you're not going to do it? Why not? And he realized, the guy's an expert in game theory, and I think he realized that he was seeing the way power works 
it's a power relationship between countries, between regions, between the hegemon and all its vassal states below them. It works on a negative basis where that one card that could solve the problem for everyone, you keep that in reserve. You're never going to actually use that because it's what gives you control Mm. over the next one. There's a negative, kind of an inherent negative relationship. And if you actually solve a situation, you break that Mm-hmm. And you make you end up with a non-hegemonic world. Of course, yeah. It's like a landlord and his peasants in the yeah. field. You don't so, keep them all dependent, and you don't. I mean, you have more than enough resources to give all of the peasantry enough to live on and to be independent. You can give them all a piece of land; they can be self-sufficient. But you're no longer in control of them. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, they would never of Syriza would have been. A change of the entire system. It, it it kind of brings us right down to the core issue uh-huh. of there cannot be a change to the system yeah. because the system is just doesn't allow for it. No, well they don't allow for it. Of course, right. the system that they impose and force on others doesn't allow for it because they don't allow it. <clears throat> but of course, it could work. Yeah. The problem with Syriza was that, I mean, even Varoufakis, it seems that he had his eyes opened when dealing with these people when, when he realized, when he heard them say that to him, when he said, here's how it can work, and they agreed, yeah, we actually agree that that's how it could work, but you know what, we're not going to do that, we're going to crunch or crush you anyway, because that's the way we do things. We remain on top and we don't share out the goodies, we don't uh, engage in any kind of equality, etc. There's a obvious, clear hierarchy here, we're at the top and you're down below us, and you stay there. What you're proposing is some kind of a distribution of wealth or a, you know, of equality, etc., and justice and fairness. That's not how it works. Are you that are you that naive, Mr. Varoufakis? Maybe he was a little bit naive about that, but it's really hard for a normal person to imagine that people who present themselves as the paragons of freedom and democracy will actually behind the scenes be exactly the opposite, mm-hmm. be a bunch of fascist dictators. And that's who these people in the central yeah. EU EU power uh, powers are. Uh, and if if they had been aware of that fully, but very few people are aware of that, and certainly some people are aware of it, but they're not people in positions of power or even relative power like in the Greek government or Syriza party, none of them realize uh, or certainly didn't realize uh, the way the game worked and their real positions and, and how, how bad it could get and how much, how far uh, the supposed uh, Democrats and uh, in the EU were willing to go. But if they did, they would have had a chance to implement the part, the, the plan that Varoufakis had. Um, they shouldn't have talked to them at all. Cert- certainly, they could have talked to them, but it would have been it should have been a ruse. Let's just keep them, string them along. Let's say we're going to do this, and okay, and maybe, and let's discuss, and let's have another meeting. Blah blah blah. Behind the scenes, they're planning for doomsday. They're planning to go, like you said, all in, and that's effectively uh, what I think what Varoufakis, at least the the basics of his plan was, but I think what was missing was to have the military on site because the other aspect of this is is when you take this kind of a, when you poke the the beast in the eye and tell him no, uh, you have to be prepared for a, a backlash. And you have to understand the nature of the backlash and the way that they go about that, uh, uh, by, 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 the way they go about getting revenge on you. And that, as we know, involves sowing kind of 
violence and chaos in, in the society, like a la a color revolution type of thing, start shooting people in the streets, unknown snipers, blah, blah, blah. So that's what they needed to be prepared for as well. But they would have had, in Greece, they would have had to have the military on side and aware and prepared to take action. Basically, they should have understood that they were dealing with like a rabid dog. So you just keep your distance, you try and kind of uh, placate it a little bit. Distract it. All, or distract it, but all the while you're preparing your big stick to completely destroy it. Yeah. Right, with your first blow. I mean, it's, it's a knockout blow. You don't take any action against these people who are extremely powerful unless you're going to give, you're going to do as much as you can to mean that they don't get up again, mm-hmm. basically. And, and there but are there's very few people are willing to take that extre- those extreme measures, and there would have been extreme measures. There are only two countries on Earth powerful enough to follow that through with Russia and China. Well, Greece could have done it in the way that I kind of described uh, with Varoufakis' economic plan and uh, having the military ready to to go through the painful process of uh, possibly having to, you know, shoot people on the street, troublemakers on the street. You know, there's basically no quarter given. You know, because the people you're up against are willing to go there. So you have to be as well. And it's hard, very difficult. Most people don't want to do that because in a, in a real way, it, it well, it feels like, and certainly it may even be in a real way, a kind of a selling out, a selling of your soul. Because these are people who are in the Syriza party who are generally peace-loving people. And for them to be asked to become extremely warlike, to combat this, these EU monsters who have no scruples and no concern about killing people at all. Uh, that's what they would have to do, and I can I can understand. So that's why I don't blame anybody in the Syriza party for not doing that, because unless they were willing to go there, they were not going to defeat them. They were not going to be able to chart their own course and really flip the bird and say, you know, and you have, they would have to set up all of that in advance and be ready to go and everybody on, on song. And to have those kind of conditions, that that unanimity amongst the people in the series of party and the military and wherever else that needed to, they needed to have it, very difficult. It just takes a few people in there to, if everybody's not on the same page and fully committed to this course of action, well, then you're probably better just not trying it. Yeah. Because you'll get the negative consequences and not the positive. Exactly. Theresa, Greece would have been better off if Theresa was never elected. Maybe. Although, as we were mentioning earlier on, there is, uh, leaving aside the actual details of it and <clears throat> the physical reality, let's say, of how it would play out, and um, despite the fact that Greece was, the Theresa party were defeated, and now they've more or less kind of been split in half and the EU power brokers have won and, and had their way in, in, in doing that the EU central powers have exposed themselves to a certain degree exposed their true natures to a lot of people in Europe such right. that if this situation comes up again it's going to be a lot harder to right I mean there's so many part. people that, that mention of the, the, the hashtag on Twitter that was trending this is a coup. This is a coup. I mean, a lot of people in Europe saw the nature of these people in, in power in the EU <clears throat> that they and they hadn't seen it before. And that awareness 
even though it's not going to change the world or anything, a lot of awareness is the best we can hope for these days, is that the evil that stalks this planet in the form of these cycles in power that and who all the time present this benevolent face, the best we can hope for is that now and again, when the mask comes off, right, the mask or comes drops. off, or they're pushed in some way, someone like the Syriza party, even expecting defeat, will stand up momentarily to them so that the mask drops momentarily and that the rest of the people in the world can get a look at it. And that's very valuable because to be just to be stuck in this complete illusion where you have evil behind a mask of goodness is, is terrible. It's going to lead, lead people uh, on the road to hell, basically, you know what I mean? And the best chance of them avoiding that is that they see what's really what, what's really happening, what the truth is, at least, you know, even to a small extent. At least if they come out of their sleep just momentarily or, you know, or just that their worldview has changed, that they're not so complacent and self-satisfied and we in the West are all wonderful and our politicians are all Democrats and peace lovers. And, you know, if they, if they can have that faith in the system, this evil system that uh, masquerades as, as good, if the people can have their faith in that shaken, then that may shake the system. Because it's the faith that props it up. It's the belief of the ordinary people. Lie that keeps it going. If they can have their faith in that lie shaken, then who knows? Meanwhile, uh, this mad chaos all around chaos in the streets, chaos in the skies. We've obviously brought, mentioned this before. I mean, the mechanism through which you reach a, a denouement, a point where, look, everything is destroyed or about to be completely destroyed, is that you get a response from the environment. And one of the most striking things in recent weeks, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, because it's summertime, you tend to get more electrical storms, is the number of people being killed by lightning. There were 18 U.S. soldiers in North Carolina, Fort Bragg, who were out in the nuke, got struck by lightning. 18. All uh, at once. From one bolt. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just that there's more lightning, but the bolt has more power or something to yeah. not to affect so many people in one area. Yeah. They weren't killed, they were injured. Some of them, several of them were injured. Well, it's interesting when I was reading the story, you can look it up. Uh, Fort Bragg, lightning strike, 18 soldiers. Um, the, the military person or whatever spokesperson at Fort Bragg said, um, he said, well, when this happened, the soldiers immediately went into their lightning strike drill. There you can <laughs> this is not a drill. Exactly. That was a real <laughs> lightning bolt. Quick run. Uh, and that's kind of what they did. They get the, apparently the, the, the protocol for lightning strike in the U.S. military manual of what to do in the shit van is... Bend uh, over and kiss your ass goodbye. goodbye. Yes. No, it's to run down a hill. If you're on high ground, run down and separate. But if you've already up, been hit... Like roll down the hill. Well, you never. It could be some kind of a Russian secret weapon. So you follow normal. It could be. That could have been the first wave. They basically respond to it as though they're being attacked by something. Russia. Well, I mean, they're not saying that, but it's kind of like a lightning bolt is like kind of like a bomb going off in yeah. the vicinity and it can injure you in that way. So they run down. Well, the only lightning specific part of the tactic or response was to get to lower ground and 
put your selfie stick down and don't put your hand above your head. Uh, also split up. I'm over here. <laughs> no, so they just split up and, and ran down the hill <clears throat> and then they checked each other to make sure they were all weren't Kentucky Fried Soldiers. So, <laughs> but it's funny, uh, there's so many more. I mean, we're actually putting together at the minute uh, a list of, you can look for it and saw it in the coming days or whatever, of, um, of the reports of lightning strikes uh, this year to date compared to last year. And it's it's kind of similar to refugees, actually, in a certain sense. It's about a seven or eight hundred percent increase in at least in the reports of people being hit by lightning from last year to this year. We've got some supporting data from a local source. Our regional newspaper last week reported on a storm that had happened the week previous, and they have they have a sensor set up in the region that will automatically count lightning strikes not just lightning strikes but actual flashes mm. flashes versus strikes that hit the ground anyway 2014 one particular storm brought the record that 2014 record was doubled by this single storm yeah. recently mm. and it's happening all over the world that kind of thing is happening exactly. that increase in, in the amount of actual lightning strikes in a storm is happening all over the world and the number of strikes that actually either hit people or destroy uh, infrastructure. I mean, one of the things, and this was another few reports recently, I think there were two reports in the last week or two of lightning hitting oil refineries. Um, there was one from a couple of years ago that I remember, but there's probably been several more. Basically, and there's a kind of runoff from the oil refining process where it's a mixture, it's into a water pool, but it's a mixture of water and oil in a big open pool. And those things apparently just get, for some reason, attract lightning. They just get hit by lightning and they combust, obviously, they explode, you know, and, and and start to burn, you know. And there's been two of those in the past couple of weeks, and I can't remember exactly where. Among other lightning strikes, there was a big lightning strike uh, that hit a plane. I mean, it wasn't just one of these, like, little, it was a big, thick bolt that hit the back of a plane somewhere in the U.S. There's a, big, there's a picture of it. That was a color. storm in Atlanta. Yes. Yeah, it was on the runway. It wasn't in the air. It was on the, yeah, it's on the ground. Yeah. So it's crazy, you know, uh... There is another chemical plant explosion in China. Yeah. A second one, massive. Well, not as big. No. But um, fairly nearby as well, like a couple of hundred miles south on the on the seaboard. Uh, there's, I found a video of it yesterday. It's, I, I, I don't think it's light. This is another thing people need to consider. Things blowing, blowing up and going on, on fire, there may not be, have been a visible bulk, but there's probably still an electrical Component discharge. Yeah. You can have a discharge um, event, which is basically a transfer of extre- an extreme amount of energy from the atmosphere, and vice versa from below, without there being an actual arc, the visible light you see. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of stuff happening that is is pretty freaky. I mean, <laughs> because at least if you see a bolt, you can go, "Oh, I know what that was." But the things blowing up and things going off the rails, train derailments, yeah. very hard to find, you know, grand, grand statistics, a base level statistics to work from. Uh-huh. But we've probably noticed uh, the number of reports of trains derailing is just... And airplanes, there was, there was two shows, there was two um, yesterday, I think, and today uh, in England and... In Switzerland. Switzerland, respectively, there were at air shows. Yeah. 
two planes can two uh, planes can land. The one in the UK was uh, pretty big. It actually killed eleven people. Guy hit the road uh, just outside the the airfield, and he was doing a loop. And he's coming around, and that makes you wonder why. I mean, when you see a spate of those things happen, it can't. It's hard to believe it's just coincidence. But obviously, these things aren't in the context of what we're talking about. They, these they pla- could pla- just be accidents, in quotes. But right, chances but are some something electrical like got fried. Right. Flew through some kind of a who knows what. I don't know, but uh, just the world is becoming extremely strange. The, the, the real strange nature of our world that has always been there seems to be kind of manifesting itself much more now, you know, and um, and it's a much more dangerous place than it used to be. People used to say, you know, uh, the world is a dangerous place. Well, they don't know the half of it. They used to say that in, in the context of, you know, human activity. You, know, you might get robbed, you might get whatever, uh, or you might get you know, a car crash or something like that. But to that and that's been worsening, obviously, over the years in terms of society going downhill. But to that, you can add the danger of the earth and the atmosphere itself. It's starting to do very strange things, and unfortunately, they're dangerous things. Uh, dangerous for human life. It, it's lightning bolts and explosions from under the ground and, uh, you know, monster hail. Uh, that I'm just waiting for the day. I don't know if it's happened yet, but I'm waiting for the report that someone has been killed by hail. Because you see these baseball-sized chunks of hail that smash car windscreens if one of those someone's in the head I mean uh, and a lot of them falling down if you get out in one of those boom so I mean that's I think that's on the cards so you know hail so the environment is turning against human beings basically it's blowing up all our stuff and killing all our peoples not all of them but some of them just arbitrarily apparently but it's an extremely dangerous place you don't just have to worry about you know uh, somebody robbing you at the cash machine or something anymore you have to be watching the skies in case uh, you know, Zeus has got your name on a thunderbolt and or, or you know a chunk of, a chunk of ice is going to hit you on the head or you're going to be swallowed by a hole in the ground that just happens to open up under your feet or a big gas explosion is going to blow you know half your town into the sky I saw a video yesterday filmed and posted by a Swedish guy who was out camping with friends and they were in awe of what they were seeing. They were seeing um, a bit of the northern lights. Well, so what? They see it regularly there. But also knocked loose in clouds. Uh-huh. Okay, that's, that's really cool. But then one of, someone shouts at the campfire and he swings around from that view to the right and there's a massive fireball <laughs> coming down. And it's like, it's not just a streak, like it's like a per se meteor. Hmm. We're talking about a fireball that turned everything briefly into in daylight. I mean, he's like, he didn't know what to film. He's like, did that just happen? And he goes back to the clouds, you know, the nice shining clouds. Of course, the two are related. The nice shining clouds are from meteor smoke, mm-hmm. which have had so many more fireballs. Yeah, it's 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 weird and wonderful, and it's uh, dangerous, for sure. Um, there's another... Oh, yeah, okay, so it also appears cute sometimes. So yesterday... I'm on my Facebook page, and instead of a cute kitty or puppy video, I come across this cute bear one. So a family in New Jersey are having a pool party, and they they got a scatter and go inside, and one of them gets a camera and films the scene. And it's a mother bear and her five cubs, which alone is unusual because they don't normally have so many cubs at once, mm. I later found out. But five cubs or four, maybe. And they've invaded the pool party, and they're swimming in the pool. And they're playing with the lilo and going down the slides. It's it's really cute. I was like, where where did that happen? And it was in New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey has bears, but it does have bears. New Jersey, although it's urban mm-hmm. and it's in the Great Eastern 
seaboard uh-huh. metropolitan area, it's actually got the highest number of black bears in North America. Oh, in the mountains. Yeah. However, there's been a bear explosion in the population. A bear exploded? Yeah, uh, no, it hasn't exploded. There's an explosion in the population oh. of black bears there. So I looked, and five years ago, they had to restart a hunting season. It was controversial at the time, but they had to start culling them because there were so many. And they culled like half the population and has rebounded in the space of two years. And they, and there was, they it's, know it's alarming people. They're expecting the social chaos, you know, to the bears know, they feel, they sense that that's going to happen. I think they're expecting a feast. Exactly. And they know there's going to be a lot of people out in the streets because wandering around and, and you know, homeless and that kind until, of stuff. Until last year, it was 150 years before a human was killed by a bear yeah. in New Jersey. And four, four have been attacked and eaten since. Yeah. I could say something really macabre, but I won't. Something really what? Something a bit morbid. A bit morbid. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe I should say it anyway. I was just thinking that the bears, that amount of bears be really for, for for getting rid of the bodies, you know? Ah, that's true. I think nature has got, I think she's got a plan. If anyone's got this figured out. Well, look at the small scavengers that deal with animal carcasses and all that kind of stuff. There has to be something, you know, programmed into the system there for a lot of human. I think so. Human bodies, you know. Um, just big, big, big scavengers, you know. Bears are just one creature, though. Um, in Europe, the wolves have been spotted in the, as far west uh, as the Netherlands. I mean, the Netherlands is part of the northwest of Europe, which is the most densely populated mm. area, region on Earth, I think. And the wolves are back. Maybe as part of a prepper kit, people should include bear costumes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they can pass unnoticed. Bear and wolf costumes, you know, so you can still go down to the Walmart and do a bit of looting and avoid the bears. <laughs> I think you're one of them. Well, that is not that might, but that could go viral. I mean, that could we could sell a lot of bear. Well, costumes. Walmart might be interested in selling them. No, we'd sell them. Oh, yeah. You know, start get up to the sewing room and start stitching all the bear costumes together and start putting them up in prepper sites. <laughs> Essential item for post-apocalyptic Earth. The bear necessities. Oh, that's perfect that's marketing. <laughs> Jeez, we're on to something here. <laughs> the simple bear necessities of life. Yep. Anyway, what else is going on? Do we have anything else, or are we going to go to a very special uh, Trump-tastic uh, pop culture roundup soon? What's it going to be? Well, there's maybe one more thing, because you mentioned hailstones. Well, um, a lot of hailstones have been damaging multiple commercial right. planes. Yep. So maybe at some point, one will actually be so damaged. It'll yeah, a big one. Yeah. Do you want ice in your drink? Yeah. Do you want ice in your in-flight drink? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's freaky, isn't it? And they're all damaged in the same way. Yeah. Uh, the nose of the plane mm-hmm. is absolutely crushed. And you know that they say that hail could never... Uh, smashed the windscreen of a car. It's been doing it all over the place. It, it hasn't penetrated the the windscreen of any of these craft, has it? But it's completely shattered no, them. Because they, no, they run into it like they're flying. They're flying at 500 miles an hour. It's not hitting them vertically, it's hitting them horizontally. They're flying into it and through it, you know? One, yeah. One of, the, one of these planes isn't going to come down. Mm-hmm. At least two of them were so damaged that Delta Airlines just decided to write yeah. them off. They're permanently grounded. 
Yeah. Well, keep watching the skies and watching the news and watching what's going on, folks, because it's uh, it's getting pretty pretty crazy out there. Um, and it's only going to get more crazy and more interesting. You know, you have to you can't be made crazy by it. You have to be interested in it. You know? Yeah, keep the faith because you've got front row seats. Yeah. <laughs> Just get a titanium umbrella. Um, and a bear suit. And a bear suit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's time for, like I was saying there, another pop culture roundup from uh, Relic. And this week, it's a little longer, but I think you'll enjoy it because it's a kind of special. It's a one-off, dedicated, Trump-tastic pop culture roundup. You'll see... Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another new fan-angled edition of Pop Culture Roundup. It's your old friend Relic here, coming to you live from the cold, wind-burnt shores of Upper Lake Canada, where snowshoes are better known as our outside shoes and 13 layers of socks are better known as our inside shoes. For those of us fortunate enough to afford shoes, that is. Speaking of misbegotten fortunes, tonight's a very special edition of the show, kids. We're going to take a look into the murky shadows of that horrible place where entertainment and politics collide. We will turn our focus upon one rather well-known mangy billionaire and take a candid, in-depth look into the life and legend of one would-be Republican U.S. presidential nominee. Let's just say that the person I'm talking about is the most Trump-horrent, Trump-testable, trump Falling, Trump noxious, Trumpifying, Trump pugnant cretin that's ever disgraced the human race. Who am I referring to, you might ask? Well, it is he who shall not be named. Yes, the ruling king of Asshole Mountain. That's right, you guessed it, Mr. Donald J. Trump. <laughs> Every pundit on the planet has been having a field day with this wispy-haired buffoon, and, well, there's not much left to be said. However, being that Mr. Trump is such a hot topic these days in the celebrity media, it is my sworn and solemn duty as your pop culture correspondent to report on topical issues such as these. So, where to begin? Born in Queens, New York City, in 1946, Donald J. Trump is the firstborn son of Frederick Trump, a successful real estate developer. I was surprised to learn on Wikipedia that Frederick Trump's middle name is Christ which may account for his son's pompous messianic complex. Rumor has it that the Trump's grandparents emigrated to the U.S. from the old country, bearing the original name of Trumpet. 
which was then anglicized and shortened to Trump because they didn't want to be known as a windy instrument that makes loud, obnoxious honking noises. It seems this irony was lost on their grandson. Mr. Trump likes to make note of the fact that he's a self-made businessman. But seeing that he inherited $200 million from his late father's estate, I think the term born with a silver spoon up his ass seems slightly more apropos. Not content to sit back and swim in his mountains of money like some deranged Scrooge McDuck, Mr. Trump then devoted all his energy to developing the Trump brand into a global phenomenon. Aside from a plethora of skyscraper Trump towers and casinos dotting about the globe, he has also developed a line of menswear, watches and accessories he calls the Donald Trump Signature Collection which includes the Donald Trump personal fragrance, advertised as smelling like a mixture of arrogance and flop sweat. Then, of course, there's the infamous Trump board game, where the winner is the player who uses eminent domain laws to buy up poor neighborhoods and build fancy hotels by forcing the most welfare recipients into the streets. True story. And who can forget his 2003 reality TV show, The Apprentice, where starry-eyed interns eagerly battle for the ultimate humiliation of being terminated via his most famous catchphrase. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. Hell, this Donald Trump person is so cantankerous and bombastic, he gives old curmudgeons like Relic here a bad name. Now, no biography of Donald Trump would be complete without addressing the elephant in the room. Or in this case, the golden fleecy roadkill abomination that he calls his toupee. So, how could old Relic possibly describe Mr. Trump's one-of-a-kind hairpiece? Imagine a rabid weasel that climbed into a giant cotton candy machine and then had sex with a custard-yellow-haired troll doll. And the resultant spawn of this ungodly union then fell into a vat of radioactive toxic sludge that was then flattened by an industrial steamroller. And then imagine this mutant creature becomes self-aware like the sentient ooze of Spider-Man's venom symbiote, where it then climbs up and permanently latches itself to Donald Trump's shiny, scaly head and is now perched up there like some coiled rattlesnake patiently waiting to strike at the hearts of innocent and unsuspecting liberal interns everywhere. Yeah, that'd fix them. Fix them good. Now, 
It's no secret that Mr. Trump has recently entered himself as a nominee in next year's presidential campaign, and thus far has made a, quite a few gaffes and missteps and blunders along the way. Yet somehow mysteriously remains at the top of the Republican leaderboard. I wonder what could account for his tremendous popularity. If only there is a way we could ask him in person. What's this? Someone is calling Relic's old-timey telephonium device? I wonder who it could be. Hello, it's old Relic here. Who do I have the pleasure of talking to? Me, Donald John Trump. Well, isn't that amazing? Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Today, I'm very proud of myself. Oh, I I'm sure you are. Can I assume, Mr. Trump, that you were just listening to our show and decided to call in? It only makes common sense. Well, I must say it's, it's an honor and a privilege to have you here with us today. What a great honor it must be for you to honor me tonight. Indeed. So, Mr. Trump, an intrepid pop culture correspondent like myself is known for asking the hard-hitting questions and... Well, I'd like to broach a certain subject that the mainstream media has chosen to ignore. Would you mind if I asked you some pointed personal questions? There's nothing better than that. Now, this, this may be a touchy subject, and I have no wish to offend. Ask a question, please. All right. Well, there's been some speculation that you, sir, engage in the practice of cannibalism and are a regular connoisseur of human flesh. Is this true? One bite and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And believe me, it's the best of the best. Well, can you describe your first experience eating another person? Nobody knew who the hell he was. Do you think it's fair for your victims to be eaten alive? First of all, these aren't babies. These are total killers. These are not the nice, sweet little people that you think, okay? Well, then, how do you justify the practice of using human beings for meat? They're not doing you any good. You don't need them. Nobody wants them. Well, so then how do you choose which kind of people you want to make for dinner? We use people that are soft and weak and, frankly, stupid and incompetent. And do you have a preference of one type of meat over another? I love the Mexican people, and I mean that in every sense of the word. Do you ever indulge in the cooking and eating of children? Inner-city children in Chicago, there's nothing better than that. Well, that sounds just horrible. How do you get away with such a barbaric practice? Because I have used the laws of this country. I've taken advantage of the laws of this country. <coughs> now, it seems to me that human cannibalism of the poor and disenfranchised has become all the rage amongst the richest 1%. 
and rumor has it that you are now serving the delicacy of human flesh at all your five-star hotel restaurants for all your elitist psychopathic friends to enjoy as well. I've just raised the stakes. Treat yourself to the very, very best life has to offer. I suppose. As the demand for homo sapien meat grows larger, you must have to outsource some of your product from other countries. We don't know who they are, where they are. They come from all over the world. But where specifically do you import your human livestock from? Mexico. I'm talking about... From all over the world, and I say that. They're coming from all over. Any other place besides Mexico? I deal with China. I have a great relationship with China. We are not making our product now. China and other countries are making our product. And uh, what would you have done, Mr. Trump, if one of your human menu items tried to escape? Folks, we want those people back. Very, very quickly. Believe me, we would have had them back quickly. Some folks are comparing you, sir, to one Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm not so sure. Look, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's really a terrific person. I, I love his stance. He's so different. He's very refreshing. Well, thank you, Mr. Trump, for being so candid about this morbid and frankly repugnant obsession of yours. But before we let you go, I, I notice you often like to proclaim how obscenely rich you are, as if this somehow justifies being a pretentious blowhard. And, well, certain psychologists might speculate that all your blustering about being a billionaire is in fact an overcompensation for the fact that you have a very small penis. Would you care to comment? I'm worth many billions of dollars. But doesn't that just prove the point? I have fairly but intelligently earned many billions of dollars, which, in a sense, was both a scorecard and acknowledgement of my abilities. So then you admit to using your enormous wealth to hide an inferiority complex about your microscopic genitalia? I have a total net worth... Well over $10 billion. I'm really rich. I'll show you that. Well, thank you then for being so forthright about your tiny testicles. Part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. All right. We're going to let you get back to the campaign trail, Mr. Trump. And thanks again for calling into our show. I am really proud. I am really honored. Well, isn't that special? As we all know, American politics is pretty much a complete farce these days. And, well, after spending some time getting to know Mr. Trump, he may be called many things, but boring is certainly not one of them. So I ask you, kids... Who better to preside over the final collapse of the stinkingly corrupt American empire than an insanely ostentatious and vitriolic fiasco like Donald J. Trump? Overall, U.S. presidents may be mere puppets, but with Mr. Trump at the helm, at least he'll be a hugely entertaining puppet. 
So, for that reason, Relic has decided to officially endorse Mr. Trump for President of the United States of America and urges you all to get out there and cast your futile little ballots in support of this pompous apprentice firing machine. And thus brings another show to a close for this week, kids. I'm kind of exhausted after that phone call and the fire's growing a little low, so... It's time for me, your old friend Relic, here to mosey on off to dreamland. Until next time, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. <laughs>